Wherever there are shadows, there are people ready to kick at the darkness until it bleeds daylight. This is Bleeding Daylight with your host, Rodney Olson. Welcome to Bleeding Daylight. Please share this and other episodes with others. Find other episodes and links to our Facebook, Instagram and Twitter pages at bleedingdaylight.net. Today's guest has faced struggles from a very early age, but he's also learned how to overcome those struggles. He believes that honest faith faces the realities of the broken world in which we live. Casanova Green is a writer, singer-songwriter, educator and pastor. He's been involved in various kinds of Christian ministry work since the age of nine and has served as a worship leader and choir director for over 20 years. He serves as the lead pastor of True Vision Christian Community in Lancaster, Ohio. He owns and runs CG Create, which aims to inspire creativity and growth in others. He's my guest on Bleeding Daylight today. Casanova, thank you so much for your time. Uh, Thank you for having me. I'm really excited to be here. I mentioned that you began in ministry work at the age of just nine. Tell me about those early years. My mother was very active in the church. Like I told people, we were there every day except maybe Thursday. (laughs) I always knew, even at a young age, that I had a call on my life. At the age of nine, it was kind of like, you're kind of voluntold what you're doing at the church at um, at that particular time. And so at the age of nine, I was licensed as the assistant youth chaplain. (laughs) And I'm like, "Uh, uh, what am I supposed to do with this? (laughs) But that led me on a journey of really learning how to serve and how to serve in ministry. I led praise and worship for the first time when I was 11 and then preached my initial sermon when I was 13. It's been a wild ride and I've seen a lot of things. I'm grateful no, for a lot of people. I've seen a lot of people who started out in ministry young like I did, and their lives have taken a crazy turn. But for me, it's what kept me grounded because I knew that I had a calling and a responsibility. Even though my life has been far from perfect at times, I have literally learned to continue to walk and follow after God's heart. It's an interesting question that that raises, and that is, how early is too early? Because I guess even if we've not experienced someone being in ministry at that age, most of us have seen videos of that that cute young child who's who's preaching, or that young girl who's who's leading worship, and and we think, oh, that's cute. But is there an age at which it's it's too early? Like if you had your time over again, knowing what you know now, would you have started at that age? Honestly, because of the supports that I had around me. Yes, but had I not had a mother who was my mother and also my pastor, who's still my pastor to this day, who were willing to nurture me and let me be a kid and be human, I would say, wait until you're at least 15, 16. And I suppose that that's a telling point too, is that some of those that we have seen and and the ones that make it to YouTube, so they're they're generally the outliers, the ones that we see that make it to, to YouTube Sometimes we see that they have been pushed into something with parents who who want to sort of make a name for themselves and their child. But what you're explaining is something quite different. It's it's a mother who's wanting to lead you in, disciple you into ministry. That's what I'm hearing. Yeah, my mom knew that there was a there was a major calling on my life, so well my sister's life. She did whatever she could to make sure that we had balance. 
even though yes, we were at church every day except for maybe Thursday. Um, we still we watched we were able to watch TV. We didn't we wasn't just like listen to gospel music only. We were li- able to listen to other forms of music. I mean, we we were a, a musical house, so you needed a little bit of everything to be effective. What what we were doing as worshipers and worship leaders. I mean, I could watch cartoons. I could go play. In fact, you'd be like, get out my house and go play during the summer. And it wasn't just me sitting here staring at a Bible because I was blessed to have a mother who lived what she taught, and following her example made it easier for me. And even in those nine years, I mean, again, I wasn't, I'm so glad YouTube did not exist in the nineties. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so glad because it was different then. I was able to have that balance and, you know, I wasn't up at nine preaching or, or doing all that stuff. I was just trying to figure out what the world was an assistant youth chaplain, even having the wisdom to know when I wasn't ready for something. My mother had married a, married a pastor. We had no, he ended up starting a church and we we're a part of his organization. And they wanted to license me as a deacon at 12 years old. I mean, I was doing the job of a deacon, but I said no. Because in that denomination, there was a lot expected to me that should not be asked of a 12 year old. And I suppose part of that being a deacon and in leading a church, you're leading a lot of people a lot older than you. And, and that's probably one of those things that made you say no. And yet we, we see in scripture, for instance, Paul tells Timothy, don't let people look down on you because of your youth. But again, it comes back to that question, how young, doesn't it? Right. And it goes back to, are you ready for that responsibility? A 12-year-old is not ready for that responsibility. I don't care how mature you are. And I was very mature as a, tw- as a 12-year-old. kind of had to be. But be like, oh, you going to pat? No, 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 no. You don't have, there's a lot that comes with life experience. And that's something I've really learned. I mean, I've had a lot of life experiences. Everything was not sunshine, rainbows, and lollipops and cartwheels. For me to be able to do what I do now at 34, pastoring this church in Lancaster, but also speaking to the lives of other pastors and other ministry leaders, and, you know, even the work we do with, with our churches in India, I have built the ethos to be able to do what I do. Parents who tend to be like, oh, I want a name for myself, and so I'm going to put my kid out here. What has God called you to do? Like, why can't you rest and lean on your own calling and on your own truth, and then you pour into your child so that way when it's their time and their turn, they're ready, rather than pushing this kid out into the spotlight at five or six years old? There, there has to be some life behind it. And for me, as I got older, I began to really reevaluate some things I've been doing and saying Over time, and as the ethos came, the understanding came. You've hinted a couple of times there that life hasn't always been smooth sailing, and we know that that's the way that life goes. So what have been some of those things that have perhaps taken you by surprise or things that have happened in your life that you've actually had to to lean on God to actually get you through those areas? My life has been pretty much a narrative of rejection. Again, as I've alluded, my mother was a single mother. My parents divorced when I was three years old. My dad, at the time, was far from the cross, and he really wanted nothing to do with God. But I, you know, you when you are a kid, you need your father. Dealing with that, like you know, we would literally go to his house. We couldn't go to church. We couldn't really do anything. We talk about church, and we get mad because he's like, he's like, those people aren't your family. Blah blah. blah. I'm your family. This whole thing. I praise God that now my dad is saved, saved, and. And living for God, he's he's a bishop as well. And he's, I mean, it's been a total 180. But for me, I always knew that I was different. 
I'm not the, the guy that you expect to see at a football game or you know sporting because I I don't I don't sport. I I just can't. I've always been a kid that's artistic, that's been in, who's in the creative arts, as you can see from my resume and all this other stuff. You're like, man, this done, this guy's done a lot. I have, but I had to deal with a narrative of rejection and also a narrative of abuse. I was molested as a child. The stepfather, ex stepfather that I talked about earlier, was a, a drug addict who was very abusive. He was abusive both to my mother and to me. Having to deal with all that in the midst of the molestation, because it wasn't. It, it, it was a pretty much, it was across the board. And then dealing with the trauma that comes with poverty, which people don't really talk about. Like there is major trauma that does come with, with living in poverty and it's not easy. For me, it's been a journey of how to navigate life with pain while being expected to produce. So I will literally be dealing with the fact that My stepfather, once again, is gone on a drug binge, but still, and my mom and I would still have to get up and do praise and worship. Dealing with the fact that we've moved for the gazillionth time, and rather than being welcomed with open arms by the school I'm at, once again, I'm being teased and bullied for reasons I don't understand, not really having true friends, but still coming into church and serving. Even as an adult, dealing with the fact that there was a huge amount of time where I was questioning my sexuality because of the trauma, because all I wanted was someone besides my immediate family to love me. And also dealing with the fact that I'm not walking around grunting and like, I'm a man, blah, 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 blah. Dealing with, with the issues that come with that, especially particularly in the black in the black church in America, especially during that time frame. The thing that has got to be through is knowing that God is who he is. And that God's promises are always true. I tell people that my life is like, it's akin to the, to the life of Samuel. That even from, from a young age, Samuel knew he had, he had the, the hand of God on his life. And even Samuel was birthed out of a place of sacrifice and rejection. Because if you look at the story, his mother, before she got pregnant with Samuel, his mother was like, God, if you give me a child, I'll give him back to you. And the other wife and Hannah's husband were like, hey, uh, yeah, you tripping, girl. Then she had the kid. And then she brought it back to Eli the priest, brought it back to Eli the priest and said, I told God, I'm going to give it back. He's yours. Teach him. I've really had to navigate that. And, you know, God has brought me to a season of healing and much needed restoration and probably some answers. I share this with my wife and I share this with my church, that it's nice to minister from a place of freedom, a place where I'm able to walk in the fullness of everything that I am and know that God has me. There's a couple of things in there I'd like to pick up on and and explore. First of all, there's the fact that from the age of three, your father's no longer around, and then the stepfather that comes along is abusive. And this is the thing that I, I wonder. For someone who's had that experience of what father is, how do you then reconcile that to the loving father that we read of in Scripture, our heavenly father? Was there a struggle for you to come to terms with who this loving heavenly father is? To be completely honest, honest with you, at times there was a major struggle, especially when I was a kid. We sing, we preach, we talk about how God is Abba Father. He's the best father you can ever have. Then my dad, I went from seeing him once every other weekend and one month during the summer to as I got older, he began to pull away. And it was not easy. And God and I had, had a few rounds about that. But I have to remember that this human man cannot compare 
to to the God that created heaven and earth. And also, I had a counterbalance in my life with my pastor, who, I mean, he's literally been my pastor since birth. Being able to have that male figure to run to and say, Paul, Paul, I'm having problems. Paul, Paul, here's what's going on. Even now, I was dealing with a major struggle. And I mean, I'm pastoring my own church, have my own family. I called, I said, Paul, Paul, I need your help. For me, having that counterbalance of, yes, you have this man who in your childhood was doing everything but being a child of God, and then this, then have this other man who is willing to drop everything to see about you, to, who's willing to sit down with you, who's willing to teach you the finer things of life, to teach you about what it means to be a man. And, man, and manhood is not just about how strong you are, how athletic you are, how many pieces of wood you can chop down. It's about providing for your family, truly being a model of how Christ loves the church, being a voice of reason and a voice of strength, but also know that strength is also under control. That really, truly helped me. Even right now, my relationship with my father is actually very, it's the best it's ever been, honestly, because I saw my father become the man who chases after God's heart. And it's been a beautiful thing to watch. The stepfather, God and I has had some rounds because at that point, my father was kind of, he was there, but he was pulling away. Then when my stepfather came in, I'm like, this is what I prayed for. I prayed for a man who loved God, loved my mother, and you know who was willing to do the work of the willing to do the work of ministry and really nurture me because I needed that. But then the ugliness came out, the secrets came out, and it was very hard for me to sit in church services and watch this man preach revivals and raise twenty thousand dollars, take half the offering, and then be gone. See this man preach and, and pastor a church and lead people to the cross, but yet become violent with me, with me and my mother. It was very hard for me to watch him love other people's children, but then turn around, love me, and then curse me out in the same breath. But I'm grateful that I had the strength of faith and still had that counterbalance of my pastor, who really made sure I was able to become the man of God that God called me to be. One of the other things that you touched on is that sense of poverty and growing up in poverty because most of the time, those of us in Western countries, we think that poverty is a lack of material things. It's a it's a lack of money, a, a lack of an opportunity in that way. But what you touched on is the truth of poverty speaking to the soul of a person. Tell me about that experience for you. The experience of poverty, it bugged me at times that, you know, we didn't have what a lot of other people had, but I'm grateful for what we did have. What we did have, we had each other, and most of all, we had faith. I've literally seen this. This is not me, me being hyperbolic. My sister can vouch for this. My mother would come home and say, hey, there's a need. Somebody needs food at the house. And we would have some food, okay? And, you know, we'll be like, all right, so what are we doing? And my mom said, clear the cabinets in the freezer. We would clear the cabinets in the freezer, and then we would drop it off to the person. And then we would come back. Like, we literally, all of us helped. Like, we would just clean everything out. We would go drop off food to the person. And then we, there have been times where we've come back, there's been food on our doorstep. The craziest time was when we opened the freezer, and, like, no one had keys to our house. Because, again, we lived in the hood. Like, nobody else had keys to the house. And nobody had broken in. We opened up the cupboards in the freezer, and the cupboard in the freezers were full. Literally, my sister can verify this story. Because it actually happened several times. Dealing with the reality of poverty, it is traumatic because we never got evicted, but we moved every year. So I never 
was able to really make grounded friendships. So you know how people like have gone through the same schools with the same people for the past few years. I was never able to do that until I went to college because I was, I was always prepared to have to move at any given moment. And that still affects me to this day on how I deal with relationships. It takes a lot to build trust with me because I never had that when I was younger. And even at the church, because of what I did, a lot of people, a lot of the kids didn't want anything to do with me because they thought I was a goody two shoes or, you know, it, you know, now as adults, they've come back to me and been like, Hey, we really should have like hung out with you more or talk with you more. But that constant fear of instability or, or something changing, um, that was the biggest hit for me, which is why I made a promise to myself because I have two children and I made a promise to myself that I'm not going to give my children an unstable life because I don't want to pass down the trauma. I don't want to pass that down from generation to generation. It's supposed to be the goal of each generation to do better than the last. And God has put me and my wife in a position to where we're able to do that. My wife grew up pretty much middle class. So like, I'll be talking about stuff and she's like, what? (laughs) Because she never had to experience that. And even with our kids, my son is five. So I've been telling him more and more about my childhood. And like, if we see something, I'll tell him about it. And I'll say, hey, when daddy was growing up, it was like this, this, and this, you know? That's why mommy and daddy always help people because daddy understands where that place is and understands the pain behind it. You've talked about the fact that you've never been a sporting sort of person and that was kind of the expectation. If you're a young man in the area that you were growing up, you needed to be sporting. And so people look down on you because of your artistic side. When did you realize, hey, actually, this is a gifting and I can explore this and, and go on to actually use this artistic side that God has given you. My mom always nurtured it. For some like for some reason she knew. Like she always nurtured nurtured my artistic side. And you know, even with me being a singer, I wasn't coming out the room like killing it. Like my sister said that I sang for a school play once and it sounded like like a dog barking. But she saw that I would I like to sing, I like to draw, I like to act. I was always, you know, tinkering with things. Like I to this day, I always have a Lego somewhere near me because it helps me kind of like de-stress and kind of figure things out. She always, So my mom actually nurtured that. And then, you know, people would try to vibe, like, you know, blah, 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 blah. My mom would be like, leave that, leave that boy alone. <laughs> because she knew that I was not, my calling in life outside of ministry, what have you, was not to be throwing somebody's ball or running down the field. She allowed me the freedom to explore being a teacher a writer and all these things, everybody around me began to realize, yeah, he has the creative side of things. So we'll just leave him alone and let him do. And where has that creativity taken you? I I mentioned that you are trying to inspire and create growth for others. How did that come about? So the creative side of taken has literally been the thing that's propelled my life forward. Musically, I've been worship leading and directing choirs for over 20 years. That has opened doors for me to really explore what I have to offer sonically in terms of the church. I began writing songs in middle school and high school and continued nurturing that in college and then even working within the church as, as a minister of music. And I've been releasing music. My first album was released in 2016. We actually just released the fourth album in February of this year, and we're actually going to be recording the 5th in August. 
I wanted to create a sound that people from all over the world could connect with, but also was an authentic sound to me. And it was like, it was what my heart speaks to God. Dealing with, even dealing with poetry, um, I have my first collection of poetry out called Things I Wish I Could Tell You. I was shocked and floored when the opportunity came to be published. It's real, it's raw. It speaks about not just the concept of faith, but the joys and also the struggles that come with it. And also what my life, like all other parts of my life and what that entails. It's brought me to where I am, to, to that side. And even with me as an educator now, I'm working on my PhD in rhetoric and composition. I have a master of fine arts in creative writing. And those have opened the doors for me to do my dream job, which is to teach. So I'm teaching at a, at a college right now. I'm actually running their English department and I'm able to impact lives that way. And, you know, looking back, had I done what was expected of me by culture, I would not be where I am right now. I really wouldn't be. And really just trusting God with the calling that he's given me and, and the tools that he's given me has really has radically shifted the trajectory of not just my personal life, but the life of my entire family. You touched on the fact that your poetry is real. It talks about the struggles that we have. I'm wondering why it is in church circles so often that the, the music that we hear, the, the poetry that we hear, all seems to be sweetness and light. Yet when we go to the scriptures, we read things in the Psalms where, <laughs> where people are really struggling with what they're facing. Is that an inspiration to you when you see the Psalms and you think, I have the opportunity to be real with God, with what I'm really feeling? Oh, yes. David and the other psalmist, man, I mean... Someone was talking about it um, as I was going to the MFA program. Like, well, you know, Christian poetry, blah, 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 blah. I said, here's the thing. My faith is the foundation of everything that I do. And also my faith is what is designed to get me through it. We cannot paint God and Jesus, the Holy Spirit, as sunshine, rainbow, and lollipops. The Bible talks about going, how we go through things, how we struggle, you know, how we're pressing. And we are given strength to go through it. And I think in the modern church, we don't want to be honest about our experiences. We don't want to really dig into the nature of our lives because we want to salve. We want the balm and Gilead, the rose of Sharon. But we also have to acknowledge the pain that the salve and the balm heals. And it's been something really deep. I Actually, I have my book in front of me. And there's a poem that just popped in my head. You mind if I read it? I would love to hear it. This poem's called Modern Day Lord's Prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and glory forever. Amen. I've called you holy and provider. I've asked for forgiveness and protection. Yet in this moment of piercing silence, my heart and mind find these words, an empty mimic stuck in rigor because my soul is clinging to life. I feel unworthy of your daily grace and I want my will to be done. My thoughts ravage me as my emotions tally the hurts, the lies, the pain that hangs limp on my heart's broad and broken shoulders. Temptation pulls me left when I want to be righteous, and I watch everyone enjoy her cheap wine, drinking deeper fun, shouting, the world is ours. And my frailty here, you sit strong, 
Seeing beyond my cynicism, bred by abuse and pain, you wash me with your words and each fall down pure and settles my doubt. So Daddy, Abba, sitting high in heaven, yet resting next to me, you are holy. Let heaven touch the earth and what you say be so in all your creation. Continue to supply my needs and teach me how to forgive and love like you. Protect me from myself, mistakes, cruelty, frailty. Everything is yours, including me. Amen. There's a great sense of trust, a great sense of openness in that. It's a sense that says God is big enough to handle the stuff that I'm going through. And yet so often in in modern day faith, as we've already mentioned, people are only about being able to to have this sunshine light that everything's going to be wonderful. Do you think it's because people don't have a faith that says, if I admit how I'm really feeling, I'm not sure that God is big enough to to meet me at that point? I totally agree with that, like with, with what you're saying. I grew up in the black liturgical expression that comes from a place of struggle. And I know a lot of my a lot of my friends, especially a lot of my friends who are white, have a very difficult time reconciling that. Because of that whole thing of, we don't sing about the struggle. We won't deal with the struggle. And I grew up singing, tragedies are commonplace. All kinds of diseases. People are slipping away. Economy's down. People can't get enough pay. But as for me, all I can say is, thank you, Lord, for all you've done for me. That, that, that economy of, Everything's falling apart, but God, I thank you <laughs> that I'm fighting a battle, but God, I praise you because I know in the praise, as I praise you, you're bringing me out of it. And my worship, I'm giving my problems to you because you can handle it. When you don't understand struggle or don't come from a place of struggle or even try to ignore it, we can't ignore the struggle. We're going to go through things. For me, having that, that childhood, having that foundation of The bills say God ain't able, but I know God is able. And if he's done it before, he'll do it again. That's what needs to come back to the church. We have to be honest with ourselves. If we're standing on God, if we're standing in his truth, we can do it. We can handle it. And God is so good that he will just move stuff out the way. So that way you can move forward. And I'm not just saying this because it's the churchy thing to say. I'm saying it because it's something that I know. It's something that I've lived. My wife, she'll like freak out over something. And then you have me going, I don't know why you tripping. Let's pray about it. Give it to God. You know, even when I have those moments of weakness, my wife will look at me. We always do this. She'll look at me, go ahead and say it. I might say it. What? Say it. Uh, and we know that all things work together for the good of them who love God are called according to his purpose. That's what we need to be speaking about right now. And that's part of the reason why, why people who are outside of the church feel such a disconnect from the church because what they're dealing with is real stuff. And they need to know that all things work together for the good of them who love God and are called according to his purpose. So we have to, yes, we can celebrate the wins, but we have to be able to sing through the struggle. People need to see that we're going through the same messiness that they are, but we've got something certain and sure that we can hang on to during that messiness. Like, we got the greatest solution to every problem in the world. Literally. If we say that God is a God of miracle signs and wonders, miracle signs and wonders are not just a leg growing out or somebody just raising from dead. A miracle sign and a wonder is 
oh my goodness, I don't have enough money to pay my bills. I get a knock on my door and somebody hands me a check. Um, a miracle sign of the wonder is when debt gets canceled and you don't know why. A miracle sign of the wonder is the fact that in the midst of deep depression, and I'm saying this from experience, in the midst of deep depression, contemplating suicide, wanting to give up, still being able to open your eyes and say, God, I thank you and get up out the bed. We have a living hope and we have to show the world that this hope, this power, this Jesus that we serve is real and will carry us through. Casanova, I'm sure that there are people listening at the moment who are absolutely resonating with what you have to say. I'm wondering if someone wanted to connect with you, to hear your music, to read your poetry, where's the easiest place for people to connect with you? All right, the easiest place to go to connect with me is um, cgcreate.online. Again, cg, my initials, create.online. That is the website that houses all of my creative work, all all of my personal ministry work as well. So you'll be able to, to get access to all the albums. You'll be able to order the book directly from the publisher. Or if you want a signed copy, you can order it from me. Also, you can find me on Facebook and Instagram. And I just, I love connecting with people. If you're listening, you're like, I just like just I just want to pick your brain. Please do. I would love to I would love to just spend time and talk with you. Casanova, I will put links to your websites in the show notes at bleedingdaylight.net so that people can find that more easily. But I just want to say thank you for spending some time with us today and sharing some of your story on Bleeding Daylight. You're more than welcome. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to Bleeding Daylight. Please help us to shine more light into the darkness by sharing this episode with others. For further details and more episodes, please visit bleedingdaylight.net.